All right. Well, I'm excited to be with you guys again. Um, I was thinking, you know, this line that I always say in the beginning of every time I talk is, oh, it's good to see you. And it's like actually good to see you because I feel like I've been talking to cameras for a really long time. And now like I like can see physical people and it makes such a big difference to me. So it is good to see you. Um, I was able to uh, teach last week and um, you guys are back for more. So I'm going to take that as a compliment. And uh, we're going to get rolling into another dimension of what it is uh, to be human. We're in a series right now called Being Human, Exploring the Life of David. And um, we've gone through a couple different dimensions of humanity. So the first uh, thing we talked about is being bold. David was bold. And we've got challenges and um, things that we face in life where we've got to be bold. Where does boldness come from? How do you overcome challenges? How do you overcome fears? How do you step into what God has for you? Um, We looked at uh, being broken. David was a broken person. Um, Leonard Cohen said, we're all broken. That's how the light gets in. And, um, you know, David had all kinds of brokenness in his life. How did he deal with his brokenness? How did he recover from brokenness? How did he go to God with that? Last week, uh, I looked at being ambitious. What's the difference between a holy ambition, God-given dreams and desires, versus uh, worldly ambition, the ambitions that the world sells to us that we eat up and we kind of run with? And this week, we're going to talk about um, being a friend. How do you be a friend? Uh, teaching text for today is 1 Samuel 18.1. And uh, you can turn there. For a little context, uh, 1 Samuel 17 is where David and Goliath face off. And so this is right after that. Uh, David's in Saul's tent. And our teaching text today is one sentence. It says, As soon as he, David, had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Um, when Calvary asked me to talk about, you know, to do two messages in this series, uh, they had a bunch of topics that they wanted to hit on the life of David. And uh, being a friend was not really at the top of my list of things that I wanted to talk about. Um, but, you know, people grabbed different ones. And then I kind of felt like I grabbed the short straw. And I was like, all right, I've got to do this friend thing. That's so lame. Um, because I honestly feel like in our culture, we don't really value friendship very much. Um, it's just not really, like, there's tons of teaching and literature and things that you can uh, buy and hear that revolve around, hey, here's what a healthy marriage looks like. Here's how to parent your kids well. Here's interpersonal dynamics. You know, what's your Enneagram type? Who are you? And it com- we, we love exploring all these dimensions of relationships, but friendship isn't really a big one. And the reason is, is because friendship isn't super popular in our culture. Um, I don't think that I, ha- I don't think this is a surprise to anybody, but our culture is trending towards isolation, right? Um, and so before I launch into the sermon, it's funny, last week I felt like I like, I had so many quotes and it took me so long to get to like what I was trying to say. And I just was like looking at you guys and I was like, this must be painful for them. And so what I did is I went home, and I sat on my porch afterwards, and I was like, all right, and I threw my Evernote in the trash for what this week was supposed to be, and I was like, I'm doing the most typical three-point sermon in the world. Every, I'm going to have three points. They're all going to start with C, and I'm just going to do that really typical thing. But before I do that, I really did, so get ready for that. I got three Cs for you. But before I do that, I want to tell you why this is important. Um... And I think it really is. I think that this actually, of all the dimensions of being human we're going to look at, I think the most important thing that we're going to talk about in this series is how to be a friend. 
Two reasons. One, the world is trending towards isolation. Um, screen time is four and a half hours a day. Um, don't tell me that you're texting people because 60% of that is spent on games, statistically. Uh, we just are, we exist in isolation and we've gotten used to it. We consider it normal. I remember Andy Crouch um, had a quote, and I had to go find the source of it. Um, it was taken from Harvard Business Review, and there was the former U.S. Surgeon General, whose uh, name is Vivek Murthy. Listen to what this, look, listen to what he said in Harvard Business Review. Um, when in the Harvard Business Review, in, uh, writing in the Harvard Business Review in 2017 on work and loneliness, physician and former U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy noted. During my years caring for patients, the most common pathology I saw was not heart disease or diabetes, it was loneliness. Noting that rates of loneliness in the United States have doubled since the 1980s, Murphy called the condition a growing health epidemic, and we are familiar now with epidemics, and pointed to research showing that loneliness and weak social connections are associated with a reduction in lifespan similar to that caused by smoking 15 cigarettes a day and even greater than that associated with obesity. Given the detrimental effects of loneliness are being recognized and identified, what is to be done? I don't know of any physician who can write out a prescription for friendship. That's from the Harvard Business Review. A friend of mine, Matt, he sent me an article. I don't know if you guys saw it. The CDC published the results from a big survey they did, they did in June. How, are, how is mental health working out in the pandemic? Do you know one in four young adults between 18 and 24 said that they have had a suicidal thought in the last month? That was shocking to me. I mean, we live our lives, we don't realize that there are people locked in apartments, terrified to go out, not a single person in their life. We're we're, we are definitely the loneliest generation that, ex that exists on planet Earth, and it's only getting worse. Um, I think that one of, the, one of the surveys I saw recently said, Generation Z actually answers on surveys they would prefer to be on their phone than to be with their family. That's the world that we're kind of creating right now. Um, I remember coming across an article called The Opposite of Loneliness. It was by Mary Keegan, who, she died in a, in a car accident, but she wrote an essay before she graduated from Yale. It was the night before, and she wrote this. The first two paragraphs I'll never forget. She said, we don't have a word for the opposite of loneliness, but if we did, I could say that's what I want in life, what I'm grateful and thankful to have found at Yale, and what I'm scared of losing when we wake up tomorrow and leave this place. It's not quite love, and it's not quite community. It's just this feeling that there are people, an abundance of people, who are in this together, who are on your team, when the check is paid and you stay at the table. There was a drummer who used to uh, play for us at Calvary, Dave Alexander. A couple of you guys might still remember him. Um, and this was probably like five or six years ago. He took a job in Texas, so he moved. And I remember we had like a going away dinner for him with the worship team and some leadership here. And we went to Iron Hill, and I remember what time we got there, because I booked the reservation. We got there at 7, and we had dinner, and it was great, and we were telling stories and laughing and, you know, just, like, kind of going at it. And then they started turning the lights off in Iron Hill, and we were like, shoot, we got to go. Like, and I remember looking at my watch, and it was 11.30. And no one had realized that from 7 to 11.30, no one had left the table. Like, we literally were all still there, and no one was even thinking about leaving. And I went home that night, and I thought, man... If, if I have to come up with a definition for what church is, that's church. When the check is paid and nobody wants to leave. And um, it's funny, you talk to psychologists and they, you know, they tell you, if you, if you like, spend two hours with a psychologist, they're going to be like, give me your earliest childhood memories and I'm going to shape the whole narrative of your life based on these things that happened to you. 
So I always go back to my childhood. I'm like, what are those key things? And I remember being less than 10 years old, and somebody in my house was watching a movie. I didn't even know what the movie was. I didn't find out until 20 years later that it was A Good Year with Russell Crowe. And it's set somewhere in France, I think, and there's this vineyard that they kind of live on. And at night, this is the crystallized memory that I have, they're all at a table, and the kids are running around, and they're eating dinner, and they're drinking wine, and basically they just stay at the table. And it's like one big party every single night. And I remember being less than 10, think how weird this is, and thinking, that's what I think I want in life. And I feel like that's the reality for all of us. When the check is paid and nobody wants to leave the table, our culture is bent in the opposite direction of that. But the, at the core of the human condition is this idea that friendship is what makes life worth living. Um, and in a, in a, in a culture... Um, where loneliness is more prevalent than ever, I think that friendship is more important than ever. And so that's one reason why I think we should pay attention to, uh, to the David and Jonathan story. But if that was all it was, that would just be convenient, and so it would be a nice to have. But I think that, uh, number two, the other reason I want to tell you why it's important is because, I, because Jesus valued friendship and said that you should too. And so as followers of, followers of Christ, we're actually called to this. Um, in John 13, John 13 is where Jesus has just finished washing the disciples' feet. And in verse 34, he actually says this, A new command I give you. And if there's a new command, you should definitely pay attention. We're, 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 we know the old commands, right? But he says, A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And then listen to this. Bold this. Underline this. Highlight this. By this... Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And so, yeah, we were created for friendship, and we, we don't thrive in loneliness, but Jesus actually calls us to something even higher than that. He says, listen, the world's going to know that you're my disciples by the way you treat each other, which is kind of counterintuitive to the way that we understand Christianity today. It's like, how much are you giving to the poor, or do you, do you evangelize in the streets? Like, what do you do to show that you're... And Jesus says, the way that you're going to do it, look at the person next to you in the row that you're sitting in. Literally, look at them. When you, like that person, loving that person, is going to tell the whole world out there that you're a follower of Jesus. I was thinking about if we walked over to Wegmans, what do what people over there, if we did a survey, what would they think that we were like? What's a Christian like? You're like, you know, if I bumped into somebody, you know, Hello, miss, I'm just doing a, a little survey. Uh, can you give me some, like, what is your first thoughts that come to you when you think about a Christian? I'm sure that those first thoughts would probably be, well, they align with this particular political party, they have this stance on moral issues, here's how they dress, here's the music they listen to, um, they're kind of weird. Uh, like, they would have certain opinions. How cool would it be if the first thing you always heard from a random person in an aisle at Wegmans is, oh, Christians? Well, I'm not a Christian myself, but I have to say, they look like they're unbelievable friends to have. Like, it just feels like every time that I see two Christians together, they give each other money, they don't care, like, they sacrifice for each other, they're always looking out for each other, they're committed to each other, they're the kind of people that push their friends forward and where they're going in life. What, I'll tell you what, man, I'm not a Christian, but I'm always tempted to be one because to be friends with those people must be the most amazing thing in the world. Isn't that crazy? Jesus literally says, everyone's going to know you're my disciples by the way you treat each other in here. 
And so, I'm just using that as a launching point into your typical three-point sermon with all the things beginning with C to tell you, please listen, because it would be a shame to miss this. Friendship is one of the most important things um, that we need to talk about. With that said, let's do the typical three C's, huh? Uh, I'm going to go back to the teaching text, 1 Samuel 18.1, and um, I'm going to just basically talk through three, three things that I think great Biblical friends do. Three things that great biblical friends do. The first one is that great friends always rally around a cause. And if you don't believe me, I'll try and prove it to you. 1 Samuel 18, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. Which obviously begs the question, why? Why would their souls be knit to each other right off the bat? Does that happen to you very often? Are you like, man, I met this person, I just bumped into them at church, and my soul was knit to them? <laughs> That's not my like actual reality. I don't live like that, right? What was it? And you have to remember who Jonathan is for it to make sense. Jonathan is heir to the throne. He's a baller. Like, he really is. He does. I mean, he's the most David-like character you can study besides David. In the beginning of 1 Samuel, you'll, you'll, you can read all kinds of epic stories about Jonathan's life. And he's the guy who is basically always asking, God, where are you moving next? What do you want to do? He's a great warrior. His dad's seven foot. He, you know, even if, he, even if his mom's short, he's probably 6'5 or something like that, right? 6'5, 280. He's, he's the greatest archer in the Bible. So he's like Legolas from Lord of the Rings, just like pumping them out. The... Uh, Jonathan, but the, the thing that you always see about Jonathan is he's always asking God, what should I do in this situation? Where should I go in this situation? That's what you see. So imagine what it was like to see David face off against Goliath and have all that rhetoric about, like, you know, you, you, know, you can't offend God, this is God's kingdom, all that type of stuff. Jonathan looks at him and basically goes, geez, that sounds a lot like the way that I think. C.S. Lewis in The Four Loves, he breaks out uh, four of the different loves. The love of God, the love of um, you know, erotic love, which is like the love you would have with a romantic relationship. Um, he breaks out affection love, which is family love, and then friendship love. And when he talks about friendship love, he says friendship is always born out of this feeling. And he says it's always wrapped around this sentence. Oh, you too? I thought I was the only one. And I think Jonathan, in that moment, after seeing what David did and hearing the way that David talked about it, he was looking at David going, wow, you too? I thought I was the only one. See, they rallied around some type of cause. And so the question for us is, what are the types of causes that you are about? What are the causes in your life? And causes can be all kinds of things. And they don't have, they don't have to be great ones. They can be bad ones. We, like, you know, I would say, like, there's, I was rallied around the cause of basketball when I was growing up. That's pretty amoral. Like, it could be either or. Um, a lot of friends that I had rallied around the causes of parties. Um, people rallied around causes, of, you know, high school is a great place to see a cause because everybody, like, kind of clicks into a certain social group because of it. So it's, like, music, sports, whatever. And causes are, you know, there's, there's always a cause. There's always something in the world that, people, that kind of binds people together. But what are, those things that, what are those things that will bind you together with other people? Um, you've heard that saying, you are what you attract. And the reality is, whoever you are, you're going to attract people like that. And so what are the causes in your life? When you actually take stock of your life and you look at it, what are you about? What do you stand for? 
Because the people that show up in your life are going to be people who stand for the same type of things. I thought about this with um, my friend Steve, Steve Ruiz. He's older than me, very like Jonathan David age gap. Um, but he's the founder of Water is Basic, which is one of the ministries that we support here. And um, I remember meeting him like uh, 10 years ago. And um, I just thought what he was doing was so cool. They, they, they create water solutions in conflict regions. So people who are literally war-torn refugees with bullets still flying in that country. Steve is this wild man who goes in there and literally creates wells and sustainable water solutions for the people who need it most. And I was blown away by his story and his life. And so I was just like, man, I want to be around this guy. And, you know, 10 years later, I serve on the board of that organization. I've been to South Sudan with him. We've had all kinds of adventures. He's a friend of mine. Like, it's like, if you took water as basic and what he's doing with his life away, we'd still be great friends. We'd still go out to eat. I'd still want to know what's going on in his life. But the reality is the thing that bound us together from the beginning is that he was about a certain kind of cause that I wanted to be about too. And that's the glue that starts it off. Um, C.S. Lewis said this, and I think this is something we really need to keep in our minds. He says... That, uh, that is why people who simply want friends can never make any. The very condition of having friends is that we should want something else besides friends. Friendship must be about something, even if we're only an enthusiasm for playing cards. Those who, can, those who have nothing can share nothing. Those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. And the idea is this. You can't really, you know, at church we say this a lot. It's like, I want community, I want community. Okay, great. What are you about? Is there something you're interested in? Where are you headed? Because great, you know, you are what you attract. And if you're about something, you're going to attract people here. But if those people just want friends for the sake of friends, that's not how friendship works. David and Jonathan rallied around a cause. The cause was they cared what God was about. They cared about the kingdom. That should be the common cause that we have in our body. So what causes are you about? And choosing your friends carefully means choosing your causes carefully too. Uh, Number two. You can write down your next C if you're a note taker. Commitment. Great friends value commitment. Commitment's a bad word in our culture. Nobody wants to commit to anything. It's like, I grew up in the era of like the transition from pre-cell phone to cell phone. And I remember before, we just were someplace, and that was how it worked. You just spent time there. Now with a cell phone, you go somewhere, and you're like, cool, I'll be there until I get a text message of something better happening, and then I'll go there. And then if there's something better than that, I'll go there. And you just kind of like, we're all like, yeah, yeah, pencil me in for everything in life, because I don't know if I could actually be there, right? But great friendships revolve around commitment. Um, David and Jonathan are interesting, because if you want to do something like homework, go through the, all of 1 Samuel, and see if you can find a time that David and Jonathan are hanging out and they don't make a promise to each other. I don't know if you'll find it. I couldn't, but maybe you're better than me. Um, I can't find it. Every time they're together, they make a promise. And um, I just picked one of them. Uh, this, is, uh, this is in 1 Samuel 20. The context of this, at the end of 1 Samuel 20, David has been living in the palace and Saul now wants to take his life, so David needs to get out. Jonathan warns him. And uh, he and David kind of connect for this last moment. This is what 1 Samuel 20, 41 says. Jonathan said, go in peace. The two of us have vowed friendship in God's name, saying God will be the bond between me and you and between my children and your children forever. We totally forget this aspect of their relationship, but David and Jonathan's life was diametrically opposed to each other. Remember, Jonathan is heir to the throne, and David 
is supposed to sit on the throne. He's anointed to be king. You think your relationships are complicated? <laughs> That's a really complicated relationship. But, but Jonathan actually sees what God is doing, and he's like, listen, I know you're going to be king, and I want to see you get there. I want to be involved with what God is doing, so let's push in that direction. But listen, I promise to help you get there. I want you to make a promise to me. I'm worried about my kids. I'm worried about how this is going to shake out when there's a regime change. You got, you know, you, you know, like the Game of Thrones type world. The moral story is everybody dies. Like whenever there's a regime change, everybody's head ends up chopped off. Like that's how it worked in the ancient world. And so Jonathan's like, when this transition happens, I feel like everybody in my family is going to get slaughtered just so you can kind of become king of Israel. And so they make this, this promise. And look what it says. The bond between me and you and between your children and my children forever. It's this reciprocal commitment where, where Jonathan says, I want to see you get to where you want to get. And David says, don't worry, I'm going, to keep, I'm going to make sure your children are safe and protected through the entire process. If you know the story, Jonathan dies a few chapters later um, fighting in battle. And the regime does change, and David does take the throne. And there's one of Jonathan's kids left, um, Mephibosheth, really hard name to say. Uh, Mephibosheth is left, and David calls Mephibosheth in, and he, Mephibosheth knows how this goes down. He must have been walking in basically saying, this is it, this is the chopping block. It's really cool to be the king's son when it's the king, and then it's really bad to be the king's son when there's a new king in town. And so he was ready to die. And David brings him in, and he goes, Mephibosheth, i got two things um, that I need to tell you. One thing is, I'm going to take care of you for the rest of your life because of who your dad was. And the second thing is, you will eat at my table every single night. And for the rest of his life, I mean, you can go all the way to first uh, to Second Samuel chapter 20 when he when David's fleeing the city because his son Absalom is in revolt. Mephibosheth is leaving with him. So from the time I don't know how old Absalom was when that all went down, but it's like from the time it takes to rear an, an entire child's you know lifetime, uh, Mephibosheth was there eating at his table the entire time. And that kind of commitment between friends is something that. The world is fascinated to watch. My dad and I got to, um, you know, go out to uh, listen to Convoy of Hope talk about what they're up to. And you guys might remember Convoy of Hope was the organization that we supported in the beginning of COVID. They feed meal, they give meals to people who are like in very poverty-stricken areas. And they've provided millions of meals across America um, between March and April, especially before government programs kicked in to help people. They were kind of there in the beginning. So as a church, we gave $30,000 to Convoy of Hope to help, to help feed these people. So thank you for your generosity in that. But my dad and I got to actually hear from their CEO um, and founder, Hal Donaldson. He said, the reason I do what I do is because I was 9 or 10 years old, and I was in one of the most poverty-stricken areas in the rural, rural south. And the police knocked on my door one night, and they said, your dad's been killed in a car accident. Your mom's in critical condition. We don't know if she's going to make it. And so him and his brothers and sisters were walked outside. The neighbors are all looking. You can imagine the lights going on in the cop car. And basically, um, they look around and they say, hey, these kids need to stay the night somewhere while we figure out a foster care situation because the mom's not coming out of the hospital. Is there anybody that could take them in for a night? They asked for a night. So their next-door neighbors were believers. And they said, yeah, that's no problem. We'll take them for the night. And what began as a night actually turned into a whole year where their mom was fighting for her life. 
Um, and this family took these kids in and they sent them to school and they put clothes on them and they gave them shoes and they basically walked them through. I mean, they basically raised them for a year. And he said, you know, he was a bright kid. He ended up going to like an Ivy League school and became a writer. And then he started Convoy of Hope, which has fed millions of people all across America. And he was like, the thing that changed my life was that there were people who were committed to actually just like making sure that I was okay. And so the idea is all of this, this huge organization that I've created that does so much, just born out of like what started as just commitment. Somebody cared enough, not just to give me a hand up, but to commit to my life transformation when I needed it the most. And so the question for us, um, I think, when we look at this is what commitments have you made? Uh, everybody makes commitments, right? And they're easy to see because you just look at your week. That's like so simple. Look at your calendar. Whatever your calendar looks like is what your commitments are. And so when you look at your calendar, what does it look like? How committed are you to your friends? Do you have the kind of friends in your life who would drop everything to be there for a situation where you really need them? Would they take your kids in if something like that happened? Are you the kind of person who has the bandwidth to take on other people's stuff like that? Do you have that bandwidth in your life? Because it's very easy to look at your calendar and find out where your commitments are. I've, I've always been challenged by this because my friends are all over the place. I don't live in the city I was born in, and my friends have kind of like tended to go all across America. And so I don't have a lot of like, I don't have the personal interaction with my friends as much as I would like, but I love them to death. And I found this little like cheat code in just like really caring for them, and that's that if my thought life is directed towards them, that's 90% of the battle. So I will put on my calendar, you know, like literally if you looked at my Google calendar, there will be blocks of time, usually in the morning, like prayer kind of time, where it just says Tom, Elvin, Jamie, Matt, and there's just blocks there. And I might actually just think about them, pray about them, write a word of encouragement, I like to write letters to people. Um, and, uh, and it's so cool because when you sit down and you just actually, when you point your thought life in the direction of a person, action usually follows. God, what do you have for, um, what do you have for Jamie right now? Is there something you're doing in his life? Is there something that I can do to help him get there? All of a sudden, what starts working, you know, the Holy Spirit just moves in that and says, yes, there actually is. And here's what you can do. Jamie needs to be encouraged right now. Jamie needs a phone call. Jamie needs you to go down there and hang out with him two days. Jamie needs you to drag him on a bike trip that he doesn't want to go on um, just to spend some time talking to another person and getting out of the house. And then all of that stuff starts to fall in place. So the question is, what commitments um, have you made? Are you actually committed to your friend? Look at your, look at your life, and you can easily see where your commitments lie. Third C is catalyst, third and final C. Um, the reality is, the, uh, you know, if you, people rally around causes, and that's great. I love when I can find people who have common interests with me, and especially if they're good common interests that like, are about the things that God's about. Great friends value commitment. Commitment is amazing. Um, people who really are going to be there for you, like that is an invaluable thing. But without transformation, I don't know if you actually hit, you definitely don't mirror what David and Jonathan are, because great friends are always catalysts for transformation. Um, there's a, probably the least preached upon chapter in all of 1 Samuel is 1 Samuel 23. 
And basically, if you had to sum up the whole chapter, it's basically just a bunch of words that say, and David was running around in the desert trying to run away from Saul. That's all it is. So I'll save you the, you don't have to read it. Um, but, but there's an excerpt in there that if you missed it, you missed one of the most pivotal things in the life of David and Jonathan. Uh, listen to what this says. This is 1 Samuel 23:15. Remember, David's in the desert running away from Saul. While David was at Horesh in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David at Horesh and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horesh. And I look at this, and there's, a key, there's two key things that happen here that I think are so important um, and, and shed so much light on what it means to be a true friend. The first thing is, remember, David's in the desert, right? And we know what David's life was like in the desert. He was in the desert for 10 years. He was anointed to be king at 16, and then he finds himself in the desert three or four years later and just runs around the desert with Saul chasing him for a decade. And I know some, everybody in this room has things that they think it's like, God's promised me this, here's my future, this is what I'm supposed to walk in, and then you're in this desert where it's just not happening. You're not seeing any kind of transformation in your own life, in that child that you're praying for, in the job that you work at. You're not seeing anything happen that you actually think is going to happen. And then you hit that rock-bottom thing where you're like, maybe I misheard. Maybe this just isn't really going to happen. Maybe this isn't the way that it works. And in that moment, in David's rock-bottom moment, who shows up? Jonathan. And when he shows up, what does he do? See, he, what he doesn't do is come up with a strategy of how he can run away from Saul. Listen, I've got the inside scoop. It's my dad. He wants to do this, this, and this. Just go here, here. They could have talked strategy. But, but Jonathan goes to David. He says, listen, I just want to do this. I want to strengthen you and God by reminding you of a couple things. One... My dad's not going to kill you. Two, you will be king over Israel. And three, I'll be second to you. God has a plan for your life. You are anointed to be king. And it may look crazy right now, but it's going to happen. That's what great friends remind you of. They remind you that you have a destiny, a God-given destiny, and they call you into it. So I've had this in my life in all kinds of ways. I mean, people who are just like, it, sometimes it looks like the conversation where people are like, Mike, don't, come on. That's such a low way for you to live. God has called you to something so much higher. Or it's when I don't really have the strength to fight for myself and my friendship. I've been, I, one time I had such a weird situation going down and I didn't have the strength to fight for myself. And literally I got three separate text messages from my closest friends and an hour and a half later we were all sitting in a coffee shop Each of them individually, not even connecting. They all just hit me up at the same exact time. And we're sitting in a coffee shop and they're basically saying, please, move in this direction. This is what, like, this is what God has for you. And I was thinking, gosh, man, like, how does God work that he aligns all these people? And they just call out my destiny. In situations where you hit rock bottom, do you have people that will call out your destiny? I think it's funny because... Part of this is actually just being vulnerable enough to tell people what you what God has called you to. Like if you talk, if you take stock of your life, is there anybody? Are you in your close relationships? Have you actually told people, "Here's something that I feel like God's promised me. Here's something that God has challenged me on. Here's the person that I desire to be." If you haven't said it, they probably can't help you, right? 
And then are you the kind of person who is actually involved in your friend's life where you know that? Just think of your two or three closest friends. Do you know what God actually has for them? And if not, ask them. I bet you they'd tell you. And if they told you, you'd have something to pray for them about. And if you had something to pray for them about, you'd have an action that God would give you, and you could push them towards that. You might remember there's a scene in Goodwill Hunting. Um, uh, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. And Matt Damon is this like boy genius who's a mathematical savant, and he's the janitor at Harvard, but he solves their math problems at night. And so people find out... Um, you know, that he's a genius, and then these, like, authority figures in his life, he goes to counseling, and they're like, you need to step in to, like, own that you have this, like, gift, and you need to, like, step up, and they hook him up with these job interviews with, like, the government and think tanks and AI stuff or whatever, and everybody wants him, but he, there's this, um, there's this scene towards the end where he's with Ben Affleck, and, and uh, they're drinking a beer after they, you know, they work construction together, they're drinking a beer, and um, Ben Affleck's like, how are the, um, how are the interviews going? And he goes, man, I don't want to do any of that stuff. And he's like, why? It pays so much better than this. And he goes, no, I just want to be with you. You know, like, we're going to do this. We'll, we'll, be, we'll work construction for 20 years, have little kids. We'll take them to baseball games. And we're just going to, like, hang out for the rest of our life. And there's some dimension of that where you think, man, that's a good friend. Just, like, be together, right? And Ben Affleck looks at Matt Damon. He goes, listen, you're my best friend. So no offense, but if you're working construction with me in 20 years, I'm going to kill you. And he goes, no, don't give me that. And he goes, no, no, no. He goes, listen. He goes, you know what the best part of my day is? He goes, the best part of my day is we go out drinking at night or whatever. I drop you off. We you know, go to bed. When I wake up in the morning and I drive up to pick you up for work, he goes, the best part of my day is those couple steps that I take between my car and your door. When I knock on your door, the 10 seconds before you answer, because I think maybe he's gone, maybe he really did go out and find like something better than this. And he goes, that's what I know. And it's, it's such a challenge to me to think, do we have relationships in our life that look like that? Do we have people who are like, listen... I don't, I don't even, even at the expense of being with you, I want to see you go somewhere. There's a faith journey that God has for every single person in this room. Do you have friends in your life who are pushing you towards that, even at their own expense? Remember, Jonathan said, I'm going to be second to you. And like, who has friends like that? I'm going to be second to you. Listen, I need you to go, I need you to go do what God has for you. I want to see you become that kind of person. So, Great friends rally around a cause. Great friends value commitment. But overall, great friends are just catalysts for transforming us. And, um, you know, as I thought about this, I was like, okay, there's my three C's. And there's no question that that is the life of David and Jonathan. And then, you know, we listen to this. And I, I you know, I, I preach like twice a year. So most of the time I'm just sitting in your seat. And I'm like, oh, great. Those three C's are great. I'm going to make that part of my life now. I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to find better causes. I'm going to be a more committed friend. And I'm going to just be a catalyst. I'll do what Mike said. I'll carve out time on the calendar. And I'm going to live like that. And then, you know, then I'll be like the truly great friend. And I've, I think like I don't want to walk out of here without saying that you can try that um, but I don't think that you can do it. I, I, sur- I surveyed all my friends um, this week, and I was like, how good of a friend do you think that you are? <laughs> uh, 
And they were like, you know, people were like, uh, they rated, I gave them a zero to 10 scale and they rated themselves. Some people were like, I think I'm a six, you know, four, whatever. They didn't rate themselves as highly as I would rate them, which was kind of funny. But everybody was like, man, I just don't do, and they basically talked about these three things. I just kind of don't do these three things like as well as I should. And, um, and, our, and G.K. Chesterton has a quote, and you know I don't go a sermon without quoting G.K. Chesterton, so here's your quote of the day. He says, Only friendliness produces friendship, and we must look far deeper into the soul of man for the thing that produces friendliness. We must look far deeper into the soul of man for the thing that produces friendliness. What's in the bottom of our souls that actually produces these things? And I want to say there's no way that you will be a biblical kind of friend unless you have God making you that way first. And so you can't really give anybody anything unless you spend time with the Lord, unless you cultivate uh, that kind of relationship, unless the Holy Spirit is actually manifesting um, himself in your life in that way. Uh, I'm going to call the worship team out, um, and you guys can... Start And I want to wrap up with this, because this has kind of been like changing my summer. Um, I, uh, I, I read through Galatians 5 a lot this summer, um, which is, you know, the fruit of the Spirit. And um, I just feel like it applies so much to the way that we work relationally between each other. The fruit of the Spirit manifests um, in our life. And I love the way that Eugene Peterson lays it out in the message translation. Um, some people don't like the message that much. I, I'm not like the biggest fan in the world, but I would definitely say that what, what he wrote in Galatians 5 in describing the fruit of the Spirit is something you should just cut out of your Bible and paste on a wall because he nailed the heart of God in an unbelievable way. Um, instead of just listing out the fruit of the Spirit, he gave the actions for it. And before he gave the actions, he, t- he kind of like sets up the dichotomy. Here's what life looks like without the fruit of the Spirit, and here's what it looks like with it. And so I want to read that over you um, and then talk about why this, I think, makes us great friends. So Galatians 5 says this, It's obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex. A stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage. Frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness. Trinket gods. Magic show religion. Paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfied once, a brutal temper, an impotence to love or be loved, divided homes and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival. You think that'll preach right now? Uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community. I could go on. This isn't the first time I have warned you, you know. If you use your freedom this way, you will not inherit God's kingdom. And then the beautiful part. But what happens when we live life God's way? He brings gifts into our lives, much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard. Things like affection for others, a.k.a. love. Exuberance about life, joy. Serenity, peace. We develop a willingness to stick with things, patience, a sense of compassion in the heart, kindness, and a conviction that a basic holiness permeates things and people, goodness. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, faithfulness, not needing to force our way in life, gentleness, able to marshal and direct our energies wisely, self-control. Why do I talk about the fruit of the Spirit in regards to friendship? Because nobody can do this stuff. 
Like, it's like everybody's tried to be, like, the person that you think that you need to be for somebody else. And we fail in all these ways. And I, I thought of, like, as I was teaching or, or going through what I was going to teach on, I was like, here's the excuses that are jumping in my mind. Maybe they're the excuses that are jumping in yours. And so I wanted to list them out and basically say, here's how God actually sees that. One excuse, I think, like, when I hear all this, I'm just like, geez, uh, I just don't really like people that much. I've heard that from some of my friends. People just bother me, man. I can't really, like, I, I hear what you're saying, but I don't really love people like that. That's totally fine. You know what happens when you live life God's way? You develop love and affection for others. You develop an affection for others. And so the thing is, you can't really, you can't sit with God and not develop an affection for other people. And so God can change that when you spend time with Him. You might say, Mike, it's hard enough for me to get out of bed. How am I actually going to be a friend for somebody? I'm depressed. I just don't feel like I can really get there. I can't be like, I can't have someone else leaning on me. No problem. You know what happens when you live life God's way? You develop an exuberance about life and serenity. You actually can be a person who brings joy to other people. You can bring peace that passes all understanding to people in the middle of what's going on right now. That's what happens when you live life God's way. Yeah, but Mike, people are so difficult. It's really hard. I just like, I mean, I know, there's a, you know, the person I know talks too much. They're annoying. I don't really like know how to be there for them. And so we just end up in these awkward situations. I don't really know what to do. Okay. What happens when we live life God's way? You develop a willingness to stick to things and a sense of compassion in the heart. Yeah, you might say, Mike, they believe all the wrong things. You can't, everything's hijacked politically in our culture, so, you know, I can't really bring up conversations with this kind of person, so I just don't talk to them. All right, that's fine, I get it, but guess what happens when you spend time with God? When you live life God's way, you develop a conviction that a basic holiness permeates things and people. And so you can't help but actually, even when someone seems the polar opposite, even if you would label them an, en them an enemy in the world, there's no way that if you spend time with God, you cannot recognize that there's a basic holiness that actually exists in them, that they're made in the image of God. And so you're going to see that, and it's going to unlock all kinds of things, and you can actually learn to love people like that. Yeah, but Mike, I've dropped the ball before. I don't, I'm not really a good friend. I don't have a good history of that. Well, here's the cool thing. When you live life God's way, you get involved in loyal commitments, faithfulness. You find yourself involved in loyal commitments. And so I don't, I don't think that you can actually go on your calendar and just make loyal commitments happen. But if you spend time with God, you will find that what comes out of that is you loyalty. You will be the kind of person that people can count on. You will be someone that is called faithful if you spend time in the Spirit. Yeah, but Mike, people say, my personality is too much to handle. I steamroll people. That's fine. You know what happens when you live life God's way? You don't need to force your way in life. Gentleness. You actually can live life. Man, if there's a message that people need to hear right now, gentleness is very, very lost in our culture. But believers can be gentle because we know that God is in control. And then here's my favorite one, and this is the one I hear all the time. Geez, Mike, I don't know. Like, I just don't have the kind of time to do what you're talking about. That's the most Western American thing that I can imagine. We don't have the time, right? 
And I love the way that Eugene Peterson phrased this. He says, we're able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. Self-control. We marshal and direct our energy in a certain direction. Self-control. That's weird, right? Self-control is supposed to be, I just don't do bad things. That's what self-control is, right? Don't eat all of the ice cream in the half gallon. Like, that's what self-control is. But it's not. Eugene Peterson lays it out perfectly. It's marshalling and directing our energies in the right direction. Self-control is saying no to things because you've said yes to better things. And so we're saying no to the things that culture is giving us because we've said yes to the relationships in our life and the people that we're trying to live and die for. You can't, you know, you, you feel like you don't have the time. You know what happens when you live life God's way? You marshal and direct your energies wisely. And so when I look at this, it's like I can, you know, the three-point sermon and the three C's or whatever, if you try and muscle your way through it, in two weeks you'll be back in the same situation, and it doesn't really make a difference. But if, if there's one thing that you take away, it's that a friendship like David and Jonathan is born out of just living in the Spirit. And so unless these things are part of your life, unless that, unless you're spending time with God, you, unless you're living God's way, you're never going to see the fruit of these things. These things won't become a tangible reality. When we talk about being human, right? There's almost nothing more human than just having friends. But we want to do it in a way that actually catalyzes people and pushes them in a direction. And I want to go back to the very beginning of why I said this is important. Jesus said, the whole world's going to know that you're my disciples. The testimony of your life and the reputation of Jesus rests on how we treat each other. So can we actually be this to each other? Look at the person next to you in your row. Jesus said, if you're loving that person, the whole world's going to know. If you want Calvary Chapel of Delaware County to be a city on the hill, what is happening in here is what makes all the difference in the world. Um... I'm going to pray for us. And I don't want to just pray a closing prayer. I want to pray this actually happens. (laughs) Like, I feel like we kind of go through the motions here where it's like, all right, cool, now I can transition to the next thing. But I want to pray for me and I want to pray for you guys. This becomes a tangible reality in our life. I want to pray that you get into a quiet place, that you have that relationship with God, and that the Spirit manifests Himself in your life in a way that you can do things that you couldn't do yesterday. So I'm going to pray with you. And please don't miss it. And then we're going to sing. God... I'm just so thankful for the day. I'm thankful that you've just given us another day to represent you in the world. And I pray that we would. Um, Just thank you for your spirit, that literally the promise is that the spirit working in us will enable us to do things that a human being could not do otherwise. And we just call out to you, God, and say we want to be friends. We want to relate to people relationally the way that you intended us to. And want people to know that you are God in heaven and on earth because of the way that we treat each other. So I pray for every heart in this room, every person that has had false starts relationally, every person who doesn't talk to someone because it's been years since that thing happened, every person in this room who just who feels every person in this room who feels lonely and they just want friends, I just pray that you would infuse in us the presence of you and the fruit that is born out of that. I pray that you would give us an affection for others, an exuberance about life, serenity, a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in the heart, a conviction that a basic holiness permeates things and people. I pray that you would make us a people who are involved in loyal commitments and don't need to force our way in life and marshal and direct our energies wisely. God, we give ourselves and our relationships to you. Would you please do what you need to do in Calvary? We want to represent you in the world. We love you.
Thank you. Amen. All right, let's stand and we'll worship.